Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Hey, Scoop listeners, I'm Ashlyn Keeley. I cover regulation and policy for The Block, and I'm on the mic this week to give you an overview on how exchanges are responding to regulatory mandates and political pressures when it comes to sanctions. Early on the morning of February 24th, Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin began the offensive by calling it a, quote, special military operation. But in the hours that followed, it became clear that Ukraine was facing a war on three fronts. The U.S. and allied countries took action by leveraging harsh sanctions against Russia, adding a number of Russian institutions and individuals to their sanctions list, including the Russian Central Bank. The idea is to hit Russia with a financial onslaught, cutting it off from the funds to support itself and its assault on Ukraine. As money transmitters, U.S. crypto firms are expected to comply with sanctions guidance. And for the most part, they are. Still, politicians have been sounding the alarm that crypto could be used as a sanctions evasion tool. And with some firms like PayPal and Revolut choosing to block Russian transactions outright, it's become confusing to figure out what crypto exchanges are responsible for, both by the letter of the law and in a broader sense. This week, I sat down with a sanctions law expert and two exchanges legal chiefs to sort out the signal from the noise. Caroline Brown is a partner at Kroll & Mooring's Washington, D.C. office. There, she advises clients on national security matters like anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance. But before her time at Kroll and Mooring, she served over a decade as a national security attorney at the U.S. Departments of Justice and the Treasury. Caroline has kindly agreed to come on to give some insight on what crypto firms are responsible for under the current sanctions directives. Thanks so much for being here, Caroline. Thanks, Ashlyn. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. So I want to start by going back a little bit. You know, it feels like these measures are so unprecedented given how the Biden administration has touted their severity. But Russia has actually been under sanctions since 2014 when it invaded Crimea. Can you explain how these new sanctions are different from those previous sanctions? Sure, absolutely. And you're right in that this isn't the first time that we've seen the United States target individuals within Putin's circle and certain sectors in the Russian economy. Previously, you know, after the 2014 invasion, the U.S. imposed what are termed sectoral sanctions. And under those sanctions, you know, those subject to U.S. jurisdiction 
are restricted from conducting specific transactions with certain listed entities, including primarily certain investment and financing activity, but can conduct other transactions. Here, the financial sanctions are much broader and include a variety of sanctions in addition to those sectoral sanctions. We're now seeing the Treasury Department using blocking sanctions in addition to sanctions that are tied to certain activities within the Russian economy. And it seems like there are some misconceptions around what's actually required of crypto firms under these current sanction directives. Some people seem to think there should be an entire blocking of Russian users, but that's not quite the case. Could you break down exactly what is required? Absolutely. Well, I think first and foremost, we have to remember that the sanctions laws that exchanges and other digital assets companies must adhere to are not specific to crypto. So sanctions laws apply to all U.S. persons and U.S. persons is defined in the sanctions context as entities incorporated in the United States, individuals ordinarily resident in the United States and persons that are physically present in the United States. And again, all of these entities that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction must adhere to the U.S. sanctions. Over the past several weeks, we've seen the U.S., the EU, and the U.K. designate a number of entities. And what that means in the context of the United States, those designations add those entities to the specially designated nationals and block person list, which is referred to as the SDN list for short. That list is maintained by the Office of Foreign Assets Control within the Department of the Treasury. Those on the list are subject to blocking sanctions or asset freezing sanctions, which do essentially what you think they would do. They block or freeze all assets of the designated entities that are located in the U.S. or that are controlled by a U.S. person wherever located. U.S. persons, and again, that includes companies organized in the U.S., like cryptocurrency exchanges, may not engage in any dealings with those Black persons or with any property in which those Black persons have any interest unless there's a specific license or an exemption from OFAC. People seem very, very bent on the idea that crypto is being used for sanctions evasion when there really isn't a lot of evidence showing that that's the case. I'm wondering, first off, if that's accurate, that it is used as a sanctions evasion tool, or if it's a bit misguided, and if we're sort of focusing on the wrong thing when it comes to sanctions evasion. I think in thinking about these questions, it's important to understand what economic sanctions are and what they're designed to do. You know, these sanctions are intended to isolate Russia from the U.S. dollar and effectively to isolate Russia from cash. We've seen over the past several weeks uh, a continuous kind of flow of sanctions being announced by not only the United States, but also the UK and the EU. And all of these have the same intended effect to cut Russia off from foreign currency and to exact a financial and economic penalty for its aggression against Ukraine. While the sanctions take effect immediately, we don't necessarily always see the results of the sanctions immediately. And so we're really in this for the long haul. And the more that Russia realizes that its cash reserves are strapped and it doesn't have access to the U.S. dollar, it's going to continue to explore ways to get access to foreign currency and to get access to cash. 
And so, again, over the long haul, I think it's possible that we could see Russia try to use crypto to evade sanctions. In fact, I think it's most certainly the case that they will try to do just that. And many crypto firms have chosen not to block all Russian users, even though some other firms like PayPal and Google have. Even though they're not compelled to block all Russian users, does this stance leave them open to any liability? Well, right now, the U.S. has placed geographic-related sanctions on the two separatist regions in Ukraine. But there's not yet a full embargo in place on Russia. And what that means is that, again, you know, crypto exchanges that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction must comply with existing sanctions in place. And those include blocking transactions with those that are on the SDN list and other prohibited addresses identified by OFAC. But exchanges are not yet prohibited from transacting with all Russian entities. And so what sort of things are you advising crypto firms right now to do to kick up their compliance? What things might they have to do right now that are different from the past? Well, they shouldn't be doing anything different from the past. You know, cryptocurrency exchanges, if they're subject to U.S. jurisdiction, already must abide by U.S. sanctions laws. And what's helpful for this context is that most of the cryptocurrency exchanges are already largely compliant, meaning that they have in place robust compliance programs. They have a compliance officer. They have AML, anti-money laundering controls in place. They have robust sanction screening. They work with transaction monitoring solution. So they already are screening for entities that are on the SDN list and blocking those transactions accordingly. So for those companies, it really is business as usual. But how does this look in practice? I sat down with Kraken's chief legal officer to take a look at what types of pressures and ethical questions exchanges are facing in this moment. Marco Santori is the chief legal officer at Kraken Digital Asset Exchange. Kraken, like many other stateside exchange venues, is sanctions compliant, but has chosen not to block Russian users outright. Marco has kindly agreed to come on to help us unravel what's required by sanctions, how they're complying, and how the expectations are affecting the industry. Thanks so much for being here, Marco. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great. Yeah. So to start, it seems like there's a bit of noise surrounding what crypto firms are currently directed to do, since some businesses like Revolut and PayPal have opted to stop serving Russia altogether. What's actually required of U.S. businesses under current sanctions directives? Yeah, that's a good baseline question. The current requirements for crypto companies are broadly the same requirements for banks and other financial services companies. There is no requirement to ban all Russian users. It's just not a legal, it's just not a legal requirement. The Office of Foreign Asset Control here in the US, other sanctions administrators around the Western world have not asked us, told us, required us, any of that to ban Russian users. I think that we are probably pretty suspicious of the efficacy of those blanket sanctions, but when it comes down to it, if the law requires it, we're gonna we're gonna do it. Right now, the law the law does not require that, and we've seen some confusion and and frankly some intentional obfuscation of the standard uh, around politicians. Some of it, you know, to serve their own political ends, and some of them to provide a pulpit for their other policy 
initiatives, which is which is to be expected. You know, there's no reason to be bitter about politicians being politicians. But one of the interesting things that we've seen is that it's provoked. <laughs> it's actually provoked a response from the regulators who have tried to communicate that the same laws apply to digital asset exchanges as to financial services companies and that there's no special requirements on digital asset exchanges except to take that risk-based approach where we look at our unique risks as a digital asset exchange and try to apply unique mitigators to those risks. And so how is Kraken meeting those expectations? What, what are you doing day to day? What are you directed to do and, and how are you executing it? Yeah, we uh, have a strong compliance function, uh, one of the strongest I've ever seen in crypto. And I've, I've been in crypto for a long, long time since, since the beginning of the political discussion around crypto. Kraken applies KYC to every single user. You can't be anonymous and use Kraken. It's the same sort of KYC that you would find in a bank or other money transmitter that requires identification of, of yourself, your name, your phone number, at higher tiers, a social security number. We require liveness checks where, where we make sure that you're not just a scammer using an ID you found on the subway or that you, you know, images you bought uh, off of the dark web. We do something called a liveness check that makes you, uh, that requires you to turn your face to the left, turn your face to the right, all in front of a camera while holding your ID. We do what we're required to do by law. And it stands in contrast to what some of the non-US exchanges do. Exchanges that block the US aren't, in many cases, aren't even obligated to do those things. In some cases where they are obligated to do those things, they, they don't do those things. So the US exchanges, by and large, are complying with you know, these specific sanctions laws and also just the broader obligations to KYC our users. Right. But so why not stop serving Russia altogether? It's a good question. And the answer comes in a few parts, at least for me and Kraken. First and foremost, we don't answer to a Twitter mob. We answer to the government. And that's a critical cornerstone of how we conduct business. It's a cornerstone for a number of reasons, but I'll give you a couple right now. One, Twitter mobs and social media mobs, I'm unfairly singling out Twitter um, but because I use it a lot. Social media mobs are flighty. They are unreliable. They lack important information. So maybe it is the right moral thing to do to block Russia, but to block all Russian users, I, I think it's probably not. But maybe, maybe it is. If that were the case, we wouldn't be relying on social media to tell us that. We would be relying on the people whose job it is to analyze the geopolitical landscape, people whose job it is to evaluate threats to the countries in which we operate, and we listen to them. In the U.S., those people are OFAC. Absolutely. And also another component of the conversation that I found very interesting, Kraken CEO Jesse Powell recently said you won't be shutting down Russian accounts unless you're legally compelled and cited this ethos of decentralization. Uh, could you speak a little bit to that reasoning? Yeah, I can. So 
The reason why a lot of us are here is because we believe that centralized institutions and centralized organizations can be just as fallible and, and just as susceptible to the same sort of outrage game as Twitter moms. And that's, that's not something we're interested in being a part of. I think that the ethos of decentralization speaks to the unreliability of centralized institutions to deliver on their promises of social good. Sometimes those institutions do really, really well for their people. But by default, I think we're skeptical of the ability of large financial institutions beholden to a number of different incentive structures. We're skeptical of their ability to really do right by people, skeptical of their ability to do right by users. We are much less skeptical of individuals being able to do right by each other. And so where a large bank or a large financial services company might block an entire swath of people who are reliant on that financial services company to live, and they might do it at political whim, that's something we take a lot more seriously. We believe that the sovereignty of the user, we believe in the user's ability and the necessity of them to use our services. We believe that that's meaningful. We believe that means something, and that's not something that should be susceptible to political whim. And, and maybe more importantly, crack and pulling out of a particular jurisdiction, blocking all their users is materially different than McDonald's pulling out of a jurisdiction and blocking all of their users. It is materially different than Starbucks or Nike or some other virtue signaling organization to pull out of the market for luxury goods in an area. Crypto is not a luxury good. Financial services are not a luxury good. They are core to a person's ability to support themselves, to feed themselves, to ensure they have housing and clean water. It is a, a monumental, it is a momentous development for a fundamental financial services company to tell somebody that they cannot use their money. So we take that very seriously. And so do you anticipate any further pressure from the Treasury? A lot of these financial regulators have been coming out and making clear what the directives are, but they're also still raising the alarm about crypto, even if there isn't necessarily a lot of evidence showing that crypto is being used as a sanction evasions tool. So are you anticipating any ratcheting up of the measures? Well, the Treasury is a good example of this, actually. What we've seen coming out of Treasury in terms of press releases and clarifications hasn't actually been provoked by the industry. It hasn't actually been provoked by world affairs. They aren't responding to some failure to follow existing law. They're responding to politicians. Specifically, they're trying to remind the politicians that crypto isn't presenting a specific risk here. It's not presenting an outsized risk. What you're seeing from the Treasury is an attempt at not just putting the, the minds of politicians at ease, but correcting their mistaken beliefs. And that's why we see press releases saying that crypto is subject to the very same sanctions laws, 
the very same anti-money laundering rules as traditional financial services, not as a reminder to the industry, and for, for sure that's, that's, that's how they're worded on their face, but the political reality is that this is an attempt at correcting misguided and ill-informed policymakers on the Hill who just started paying attention to crypto a few weeks ago because of the headlines. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. While Kraken has made it clear it will continue to be guided by the mandates of sanctions guidance, blocking users only when the U.S. government mandates it, some exchanges are taking a different approach. FTX has chosen to block all Russian banks, a step that's not currently mandated by any sanctions guidance. Still, that's a far cry from blocking all Russian individuals. I asked FTX's head of policy and regulatory strategy why they've taken that approach. Mark Weijin is head of policy and regulatory strategy at crypto exchange FTX. However, before his time in the crypto ecosystem, he was acting head of the CFTC under the Obama administration. Mark agreed to come on to chat about what exchanges are responsible for when it comes to sanctions at the current moment. Thanks so much for coming on, Mark. Thanks, Ashton. It's great to be here. So it seems like there's a bit of noise surrounding what crypto firms are doing related to sanctions. Some businesses like Revolut and PayPal have opted to stop serving Russia. Other crypto firms are sanctions compliant, but have made it very clear they won't cease serving non-sanctioned Russian users until they're compelled to do so. What are crypto firms responsible for right now related to sanctions? Well, it's a great first question for our discussion here. FTX's view is that our first responsibility is to do what's required by the law. FTX has a slightly different structure than some of the other companies in the space, some of the other exchanges in the space. And by that, I mean that we have FTX.com, which is headquartered outside of the United States. And then we have FTX.us. 
So the laws could be different. As it turns out, they're basically the same in this case. And they're basically the same because the Bahamas and the United States are both members of the same organizing committee called FATFA, which basically is a body that tries to adopt international standards that individual countries can therefore adopt in their specific legislation. And so the idea there is to create uniformity, or at least as much of it as possible, around specific requirements as it relates to anti-money laundering, as well as your customer type legal considerations. So that's the first point. We have our legal obligations and we always follow those. And then the second point, which was referenced in your question is, are there other obligations for one reason or another that an exchange should take on beyond what's legally required? And that I think has been the focus of a lot of the media attention, because as you pointed out, again, there are different entities that are taking different approaches here. We have taken the approach that even though Russian banks, for example, have not been specifically prohibited from being involved in our platforms, we've nonetheless taken the step to not allow any sort of fiat transfers to and from Russian banking institutions. And that's more of a risk-based type of decision. In other words, we do feel comfortable that if a particular Russian banking institution finds itself on some particular prohibited list, a sanctions list, whatever the case might be, We'd obviously be able to identify that from such a list and then take steps to keep activity coming to and from such an institution. But we wanted to be extra conservative in this respect in light of the circumstances that are taking place in Russia, in the Ukraine, and obviously around the world as a consequence. So that's our posture right now. And that's what we're doing on the AML front at the moment. Absolutely. And so why take that next step specifically? Why specifically only do banks rather than extending to all Russian users or any other specific step? Well, the main reason, Ashlyn, is that it's not clear to us and there's been no signal sent to us, let alone a specific message sent to us by the U.S. government in particular or any other government around the world that prohibiting Russian users would be consistent with one or another particular policy outcome right now. In other words, or some might have the view, in fact, even officials in the Ukraine have more or less suggested this. Some have the view that all Russian people should not be allowed to use any banking institution or a digital asset platform. But it's just not clear that taking that approach to banning all Russian members would necessarily lead to the outcome of bringing an early end to this conflict or to otherwise lead to an outcome that applies pressure on Putin, gets him to stop some of what he's doing, maybe even beyond prosecuting this conflict in the Ukraine. And so we're not in a very good position as an exchange operator to take a particular view on that question, the question of if we were to block all Russian users, would that be in service to some national security interests of the United States? Would that be in service of ending the conflict early, et cetera, et cetera? So without a clear answer to that, and we're trying to be humble about it based on our role and our visibility into uh, what's going on in the world, which is somewhat limited, obviously, compared to other actors like state actors. We've just taken this approach that for now, we're, we're not going to take that extra step of blocking all Russian users. It will change, I think, based on express direction from our regulators or other official sector partners. So some firms have only blocked identified bad actors. They haven't even taken that second step like FTX did. Is it enough to only block identified bad actors? Should exchanges be doing more to further attempts to financially cut off Russia? I think the, the answer, again, is it's not clear that 
it's warranted to take that extra step because it's not clear what purpose it would serve at the moment. Obviously, it would be somewhat harmful and restrictive to the economic activities of everyday Russians. But does that apply pressure on Putin? Does that lead to a quicker outcome of ending this conflict in Ukraine? That's what's not clear to us. And some firms have cited that to make that decision as an exchange sort of creates a slippery slope of a centralized service discerning who does and doesn't get access to money outside of regulatory parameters. What's your take on that concern? What I'm hearing in that type of a statement is that certainly the ethos of crypto is to democratize and expand access to financial products. And if a centralized actor like an exchange operator, in our case, a regulated exchange operator, starts making decisions beyond what's expressly required by law, it has the effect of limiting access to participants. That does put us in a position of doing something that, again, is inconsistent with that overall ethos of expanding access as much as possible. So that's what I hear when I hear that statement. And I can sympathize with that statement. But to be clear, we will do whatever we're required to do legally. And if we feel like we can make a clear judgment about a step we can take that would be in service to what we understand the mission to be, on the international foreign policy front, which is trying to bring it into this conflict, we would seriously consider such a step. But again, we're trying to be humble. We're trying to understand our place in the world and, and understanding that we don't have all the facts and information that, for example, the U.S. official sector or other governments around the world, we just don't have that same information, data, and facts that they do to make those informed decisions. Turning to Congress, in addition to the Treasury, lawmakers have been sounding the alarm, even though there isn't necessarily a lot of evidence that crypto is actually being used as a tool to avoid sanctions yet. Senator Elizabeth Warren has that proposed legislation on the floor right now that would significantly impact exchanges. And Representative Brad Sherman says he's going to introduce a companion bill in the House. How are you viewing these circulating proposals right now? We're definitely reviewing them with interest, I would say. <laughs> It's not at all clear how much traction the legislation is going to get. So it's not clear just how likely these bills are going to become law, but we're certainly going to be monitoring them and following the process as it unfolds. One thing that's clear is this legislation spearheaded by Senator Warren is focused particularly on the digital asset space and definitions in statutory language become very, very important. They're always important in every instance. It's usually where the boundaries of applicability get drawn through those definitions. And if you take a quick read at the bill that was introduced, you can see that it's pretty expansive language, particularly as it relates to the definition of a digital asset transaction facilitator. Very, very broad and very similar to some of the reporting language that was in the funding legislation from last year. Yeah, quite, quite similar. I haven't actually analyzed it carefully enough to see whether it tracks it precisely, but it's, it's definitely quite similar in its breadth. And so I think that's definitely something to watch. And if it were to become law, it certainly would implicate not just centralized platforms, but decentralized platforms as well. That's my opinion based on, like I said, a, a relatively recent and relatively quick read. But if you just look at the, you know, the clear text of the bill, it would seem to suggest that would be the impact of this legislation. I'm not sure that's the intent. I suspect it is. But yeah, it would certainly be quite a change. While industry players say they're concerned by the bill's language, many say it's unlikely to move forward in a meaningful way. 
However, the sanctions conversation could be part of the zeitgeist for some time. As Caroline Brown noted, with so many forces at play, it's hard to say when sanctions will be lifted. Are we in a new world where, you know, this is going to be the case and we have to be concerned about this for a very long time? I think a lot of that depends on how long the invasion of Ukraine goes on by Russia. This kind of gets into a question of geopolitics. You know, what are we going to see happen on the ground with Ukraine and what is going to be the West's response to this? Right now, there is clearly concerted action to cut off Russia from, again, any cash, you know, the U.S. dollar, any way that it has to evade these sanctions and to fund this war. So as long as that goes on, we'll continue to see sanctions imposed, the maintenance of these sanctions, and prosecution for tactics taken to evade these sanctions. In the meantime, keep an eye out for future policy scoop updates and follow me at the block at Ashton Keeley to see how it unfolds.